Alright Dave, next up is a chapter about Elaine stroke Sansa. Uh, now, now. <laughs> <laughs> Once Marjorie's killed, he wants to kiss her severed head uh, because she never kissed him. Leave the camera on the crowd while it happens. Just like, sort of like, off with her head. Shunk. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. what is the sound of a hundred thousand people realizing that one of the soldiers by the newly severed head of the queen is actually giving her a bit of a kiss? <laughs> Hello, welcome to Shark Liver Oil. We're looking at George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, part nine of our coverage. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. This week, we're reading from a chapter about Cersei, which begins. Grand Maester Pycelle. <laughs> as far as a chapter about Brienne, which is about her having some kind of nightmare. Now, now, having had you so comprehensively slate this bit of the book last week, <laughs> I have to tell you that one of the only reasons I'm able to keep going is because Grandmaster Pycelle. Yeah, features, wicker wicker. Thro- throwing beats, <laughs> busting tunes, taking it back to the old school. <laughs> If you heard the end of the last podcast, I did think that this was going to be a bit of a rough ride because uh, it's three chapters, which um, I mean, basically the, the the two POV characters that I think I particularly like in this book are Jamie and Brienne, and neither of them feature in this next little section. Um, <laughs> we do get plenty of Elaine and Sweet Robin, but more of that later. Um, so, so, I I love the venom in your voice. It's just it's glorious you're holding back i can tell okay so so the chapter about cersei and um the grand maester pycelle's there he's there um he's got some deathbed beats to lay on cersei because deathbed beats because fuck right off (laughs) (laughs) milady i gotta tell you (laughs) he's dead (laughs) who's dead (laughs) I'm imagining sort Everybody of a... with me now. Who's dead? <laughs> Say what? Gricka Wicker Grandmaster Pycelle is is showing that um it's it's telling Cersei that Giles Lord Rosby, the guy who's been uh coughing up blood, it is Sputum. Has now died. <laughs> it, it is merely Sputum, he said. Nearly coughing up a lung. <laughs> and Cersei's immediate response here is to accuse Pycelle of having a hand in it, um, assuming that he must be now working for the Tyrells, seeing as he's allowed this sickly old man to die. Uh, yeah. More craziness from Cersei. Yeah, well, very much, right? Like, it, this is kind of like... I actually, I watched an episode of a, a TV show last night called Ambassadors, and there's there's one it's a Robert uh, Robert Webb and David Mitchell thing and it's really really good, um, and it's kind of set abroad. It's set in a sort of British embassy in in this fictional Central Asian state, and um, they have a trade envoy visit from like this minor royal, who um, who just can't get his head around the fact that he has to stay in the in the embassy because he's like I stay in the Four Seasons and they're like, I'm sorry there is no Four Seasons and he's like but I stay in the Four Seasons. Yeah, and they're like, there isn't one in this city, and he's like, right, I'll stay at the one on the beach then. And they're like, Your Majesty, this is a this is a, a landlocked country. 
there is no beach. <laughs> and they just have to keep explaining it to them. And I kind of felt this way with Cersei, but it's just Cersei here still has the right of life and death over people. It's like, yeah. Milady, he was dying, and then he died. <laughs> I, I'm not certain what else you want from me here. <laughs> yeah, it's just this downward spiral with Cersei and just uh, paranoia, isn't it? She suspects yeah. everyone. And I think it might be because... Like she, when she's been suspicious in the past, she's been right. So now she assumes yeah. that she must be right every time. And I suppose yeah, if you yeah. if you sort of stop plots from happening before knowing whether they're really a plot, you can assume that mm. you've stopped a load of plots from happening, even if they never existed in the first place. Yeah, 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 very much. And if you kill everybody within a twenty mile radius, you can definitely stop all the plots. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, we have to know that that's where she's going. She wants to stop all the plots. All of them. All of them by killing everybody. That's my <laughs> new new prediction. Right, okay. Varys is not a mermaid. Podrick ends up on the Iron Throne. And Cersei tries to get her own way by killing literally every breathing thing w- between her and the horizon. Mm. New theory. <laughs> um, she does, actually, Cersei, get some information out of Pycelle by threatening his life, though. Um, and, and accusing him of being a sort of a lackey for the for the Tyrells now. She just got yeah. out of him the fact that he's been brewing moon tea for Marjorie. Mm. Do you think is this is it? Do you reckon this is true, or is Pycelle just sort of desperately telling Cersei whatever she wants to hear? Well, he's definitely got more experience than most in dealing with Cersei and surviving, hasn't mm. he? Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I mean, it, and it does quite conveniently play to her, play to what she wants to believe. And she certainly seizes on it with both hands. Yeah. Aha, I knew it. But the interesting thing is that try as she may for the rest of this, for the rest of this chapter, she can't actually find any evidence at all that Marjorie's been shagging around. Yeah. And and almost it seems to, it it's seems clear that she spends all of her time, literally all of her time, with at least three other women. Yeah. So you'd think she'd be hard-pressed to it, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. That's what makes me think that this is Pycelle just throwing her a bone, just being sort of, just saying, you know, just yeah. he, he's still sort of quick-witted enough to think, you know what, she just wants to hear some kind of, something about Marjorie that I can give her. Yeah. So he gives her that. Um, he doesn't look too bad because it looks like he's sort of been forced to do it, and um, yeah. and it gets him out of a tight spot, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, it really does. Yeah, it's almost like he's treating Cersei a bit like a a wild rabid animal, and he's managed to cause yeah. some kind of you know she's 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 snarling and getting prepared to pounce on him, and he manages to sort of throw a rock at a bush and give <laughs> distract her, and she goes <laughs> running off after that, and he's like, Whew, right, yeah, sorry. but but I mean, but what a high stakes play, right? I mean, mm. this is this is an old political operator throwing the queen to the wolves, yeah. You know, the queen of the entire country, nominally the most powerful woman in the country, although we know that's not true. And he's just like, oh, fucking hell. Oh, geez, this woman's mental. Tell her what, I'll, t- I'll give her an excuse to kill the queen. Yeah. You know, kill her sister-in-law. Totally crazy. Yeah. Uh, Cersei, later on that evening, feasts on wild boar. She uh, She's mm. developed a real taste for it ever since, it. you know, one of them killed Robert. Um, mm. she, she does have this kind of... 
dark humour about her, doesn't she, Cersei, with stuff like this. Like, she likes to eat wild boar because it killed her husband, and she's yeah. got a, a bronzed dwarf head which she keeps in a chamber pot and I assume craps on every night. It's just a sort of, there is a little sense of black humour to her insanity as well, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, if I were able to be in every room Cersei is in without her ever seeing me and therefore without me ever being in danger... I would probably spend my entire time laughing in her face because mm. um, she is totally laughable, but also, you know, a bit mm. scary. Now, she picks uh, Lady Merriweather's husband for the yeah. to, to replace Rosby as the... Uh, I think she, she might make him Hand of the King and, and shift to whoever was, whoever was uselessly being Hand of the King before to, to Master of Coin. Although she's changed all the titles <laughs> around, doesn't she? But, you know, that, that's, that's yeah. roughly what she's done. But... Oh, talk about rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Mm. Like she just seems to be completely incapable of realizing that she's wrecking this country. Yeah, by constantly putting in people who are loyal and nothing else. People who are yeah, basically pe- loyal because they're absolutely useless. Exactly. Loyal and useless. Mm. And that's what she wants in servants. Mm. And it's and it's so weird seeing somebody who's so well schooled in power as Cersei, mm. you know, embrace such a stupid way of doing things. It's it's like watching, like, it's like watching Lionel Messi decide that perhaps the way to get goals is just to run to his own half and then just punt it long long ball, see route one, just get right to the striker, <laughs> you know, see if he can get away with it. It's like you know better than that. You've mm. succeeded better than that. What the hell are you doing? Yeah. Now she she gets this guy called the Blue Bard to come before her. Who's uh, he's this guy who's been playing music for Marjorie um, recently, mm. and basically, let's just a few steps down the line. She forces a confession out of him eventually by taking him down to the black cells with Kyburn and torturing him until he tells her what she wants to hear, and he basically spins this whole tale about Marjorie and these three sort of girls, cousins who are always with her and this sort mm. of debauched um, afternoons of sort of orgies that they've been having. Um, so- Without anybody hearing about it until now somehow. Yeah. Is the thing that amazes me. It's like, you're in a castle. Yeah. I mean, all right, the walls are pretty thick, but <laughs> everybody knows everything inside a castle. Oh, yeah. there have been rampant sex parties featuring the Queen... Yeah. For as long as she's been the queen, and I haven't heard about it. Like, <laughs> what? And it's also the people involved. Um, she sort of moulds his confession to suit her means. So, like, she says, oh, yeah, it was uh, it was her and all the cousins. And then Lady Merriweather said, oh, yeah, I've managed to flip one of them. She's going to sort of, she'll say whatever we want. So it's, oh, no, it wasn't that cousin, though, was it? She was sort of standing by saying, please stop. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that, that must be what happened. And then when he's naming the, the men who've been sort of involved, she sort of keeps like pulling names away and saying oh no you can't it wasn't him was it oh no, you know, oh, no it wasn't Solaris because that wouldn't suit me yeah. and it's just yeah. she creates the confession like custom made confession from him through torturing him and then yeah. the interesting thing is and then she sort of makes herself believe it doesn't she like yeah. even even in, even what she isn't saying just the stuff in her head um, yeah. she's almost having some kind of like revolution on her own mind and and making her honestly believe that this has happened. Yeah, very odd. It's yeah. I mean, I think this is a good example of something that George actually does really well. Is that you know the unreliable narrator, 
and and you kind of just by the way they tell the story to themselves you get to understand exactly what kind of bullshit they're selling themselves even you know so there are a couple of other parts of this chapter one is she has this bath with lady merriweather this this is this sort of this full-on gay relationship now isn't it really um yeah and she sort of turns to her for comfort um wherever she whenever she needs it and here she sort of just has this bath with her and she's talking yeah. about you know how she's still worried about various things she thinks that she can get a confession out of this uh as we said one of the cousins of marjorie to help sort of seal this plot and she says to yeah. uh lady mary whether you know all i'm doing is for tommen all i do is for him yeah and uh this is shown up to and including implicating his wife yeah yeah hmm hmm really for him is it <laughs> well i think she does genuinely believe that he is better off without her doesn't she she thinks she, she, is she does but influence. i mean but this is this is like um this is like kind of pushy sports or showbiz parents isn't it yeah this is i'm doing it for his good i'm doing it for his good dance dance again practice until two in the morning it's for your own good <laughs> you know it's that sort of actually what she's really doing is working out her own issues through the veil of motherhood uh and obviously obviously tommen's not a fan yeah uh and it's very damaging yeah i think it's like um yeah it's just like uh, a mother who's afraid of water not letting the child go anywhere near water and not letting them learn yeah, to swim because it's because it's exactly. too dangerous yeah you're not doing them any favors you're just doing yourself some good mm. and you know and that's a you know a common syndrome but it's not good mm. at all yeah you know cersei moves the plot another step her plot to sort of get Marjorie into sort of a, you know, bring down Marjorie a step further as well by um, she meets with Sir Osney Kettleblack, this guy who has promised that he'll be able to seduce Marjorie and has been singularly unable to do so. Um, mm. She now wants him to confess that he did sleep with Marjorie and he was involved in all this sort of orgies and stuff. And yeah. um, to sort of get him on board, she actually sort of basically shags him there and then yeah he, he's sort of he's a he's just such a horrible bastard this guy isn't he he, he turns is, up and he's like but, he's like i've got something hard for you You're like oh here we go he's and it, oh, have you <laughs> yeah dearie me it's like it's like benny hill but without the sense of kind of winsome faded innocence yeah isn't it it's <laughs> it's it's just like kind of it's a seventy, a bawdy seventies comedy without any kind of innuendo. Yeah. Just j- instead of that, just like look at my cock. <laughs> hey! And Cersei says as well, you know, all these things that he'll get for, um, for confessing and then taking the black. You know, he's th- so it's sort of it's another way of continuing this plan of conf- uh, take the black. You know, uh, because you've been sleeping with the queen, and then I'll get you back down here, and everything will be sunshine and rainbows. Um, but he also says once Marjorie's killed for tre- for treason, um, for cheating on the king, effectively, she- he wants to yeah. kiss her severed head uh, because she never kissed him. Uh, so that just shows the sort of the the sort of measure of the man as well. Yeah, and when are you going to do that exactly? <laughs> Is it going to be you know Queen Cersei comes up and says right now everybody leave the severed head alone? <laughs> no, no, no. Don't ask me why. Just bring Kettle Black in here. <laughs> 
Right, there you go. Or is she going to do it in front of everybody on the scaffold? Just sort of like, <laughs> you should imagine that. Just leave the camera on the crowd while it happens. Mm. Just like sort of like, off with her head, off with her head. Shunk. <laughs> like, yeah. what is the sound of 100,000 people realising that one of the soldiers by the newly severed head of the Queen is actually giving her a bit of a kiss? <laughs> The hell? Yeah. <laughs> for all um, I, the, one thing to say here for all Cersei's sort of poor and uh, ov- obvious running down of the small council and mishandling of running the kingdom, it does seem yeah. here that the jaws are closing on Marjorie, doesn't it? This plot yeah. seems to be. I mean, she's got a few people lined up to confess now. If you if she gets the cousin and gets Osney. And the blue bard, who admittedly is in no state to sort of see anybody anymore, but um, mm. she's got three confessions there, and she, you know, Sir Loris has been moved away. The Queen of Thorns isn't there anymore. It feels like Marjorie's been sort of pulled away from people who are genuine friends of hers, and now this yeah. plot's really building around her as well. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually quite sad about that. I really don't like her very much in the TV series, but in the book, I've nothing really to hate. You know, she's much more of a kind of straw man. Yeah. Um, you know, she just represents everything Cersei's afraid of, mm. and um, which makes her much more sympathetic. Anybody that Cersei's opposed to is probably a friend of mine. Um, but yeah, like it really does seem that she's been comprehensively outmaneuvered here, and you can't really see a way for her to get out of it, can you? Yeah, and it's it says a lot that it doesn't appear that she does any manoeuvring of herself. She's just sort of, you know, trundling along being the being the, being the queen. Um yeah. As far as we can tell, there's there's no sort of there's, there's almost hardly any character there of Marjorie in the book and she's just something that things happen to. And she doesn't appear to be trying to sideline Cersei or anything, especially uh, from what we can tell anyway. Doesn't seem to be any mm. moves to against Cersei. It's just everything in her own head, Cersei, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. So, and she just hates the fact that there's somebody who's around younger and prettier than she is. Yeah. And you know, and we haven't really, we haven't really touched on whatever the opposite. This, what would you have to call this? It's Freudian. You know, it's like the opposite of an Electra complex, isn't it? Mm. Like the mother interfering with her son's wife. Mm. 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 A <laughs> little bit troubling there, I think. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, for whatever the motives, whatever the reasons, it does look like Marjorie is uh, close to a fall here without really knowing it, and probably not really knowing why as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, We move on to The Princess in the Tower. Uh, This is, we're back in Dawn. Somebody we've met before, is it? Yeah. Or is this a new character? It's a midlock. Nine-tenths of the way through the book. It's a midlock. A midlock. It's 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 like a like a pre epilogue now, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose. A, yeah. A prepilogue. It's a prepilogue. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, she's um, it's Ariana who we did. I mean, we saw from her. We we were sort of in her head during yeah. this rebellion, weren't we? I don't remember what the name of the chapter was there. Um. Um. Oh, it was called something else, wasn't it? It was called the the, oh, the, the queen maker. Princess. It was the queen maker. The queen maker. Yeah. There we go. Okay. So she's the queen maker. And now she's the princess in the tower. Mm-hmm. And next time she's going to be the the field mouse in the castle. And the next time she's going to be the the, the the sullen teenager. 
She's just about a teenager. Yeah, that's it. That's going to be it. Little Miss Sulk is going to be the name of one of her chapters one yeah. of these days. Okay, so Ariana is in captivity now. She's been taken to this tower uh, because when we last saw her, she was leading a dreadfully put together and doomed rebellion. Um <laughs> <laughs> the ve- the best actually I think the best contender yet for an arrested development game of thrones crossover I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> yeah. Award. So she's been she's been taken to the this tower and she's left there basically by Doran the uh the prince of dawn just to stew for a bit and he sort of just wears her down by just leaving her on her own. So she at first mm. she's all defiant and she's sort of like when she expects to be seen that evening and she wears her most sort of uh, revealing dress to sort of embarrass her dad and uh, it's uh, it's all about sort of she's not at all sorry for what she's done and yeah. as time goes on she she does I mean it, weeks maybe even months go by with her just sitting in this room on her own um, yeah. she tries to make contact with the other sand snakes who she assumes are in prison nearby but she can't seem to get any response she um, she tries to get a message out sort of to try and get herself busted out but the person who delivers the message appears to have got gotten caught so that doesn't work and uh, eventually she's just got to wait until until Doran summons her what did you make of this sort of long wait in the tower um it it really connected me, actually, in a way that I've never had before. And that's really weird because, you know, this is a book about castle intrigue and people being locked in towers for years and years mm. and so on. Um, what that, why that was so bad, mm. you know, because I, I, like, I mean, you grow up, don't you? And like all the kind of old medieval fairy tales and the rest of it, you know, there's a princess in the tower and she's captured and she's not allowed to leave. And you kind of wonder, like, is that so bad living in a castle? Yeah. I mean, were you leaving anyway? <laughs> got got a wanderlust on, you know. Got your got your star travel card and wanting to go around Asia, um, you know. But actually, it's interesting, you know. He makes sure that she's fed and looks after her and stuff, but totally breaks her spirit by just having nobody speak to her. Mm. Really amazing. Yeah, and so so finally he he uh, gets her to come before him, and again it's a real um, pretty. I don't know, it's a difficult father-daughter argument, this, isn't it? It isn't her coming up saying, yeah, I'm really sorry, I got it wrong, you know, hope you forgive me, Dad, what should happen next? She's just, um, I'll be honest, I really didn't like Ariana in this. She just seems to be constantly ballsing stuff up and just just not being at all sort of, just just not listening as well. She just, she can't, she doesn't seem to sort of plan ahead or have any kind of head for strategy she just i don't know just she just came across as spoiled and and headstrong in a, a way that is very unattractive yeah 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 very much um although i mean while i, I agree with that frustration i didn't find it that irritating hmm. i was still like it seemed to me like a more realistic depiction of a teenager who isn't quite ready for the big time yeah and you know all we've seen so far are people who are laughably incompetent Hmm. or terrifyingly good at the Game of Thrones. And this is somebody who wants to be good at it and is trying to be good at it and actually isn't quite good enough. Yeah. You know, like kind of, you know, uh, eyes bigger than her belly for power, Hmm. you know. 
And I thought that was very interesting. So I feel like that's a more realistic depiction of kind of adolescence, I suppose, yeah. than either being completely pathetic or completely terrifying. Yeah. I suppose that the closest parallel, the closest uh, character who's like her in the whole Game of Thrones universe would be um, Asha Greyjoy over at uh, Iron Islands. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, I, and, and Asha I, Greyjoy, but without the sense of humour. Yeah. And badassness. And maybe that's it, because I, I really like Asha. I think I think she's a great character, and I, and I really enjoy seeing her on page. But uh, I, yeah. I don't feel that about Ariana. But maybe that's the difference. Maybe it's because she's got this sort of dry humour to it as well. And um, I don't know, there's a more of a independence. I just feel that the Ariana character is just... Part of it is the fact that she's been so safe for so long and she can basically do anything. And um, there's never any real danger to her. It's just everybody around her who sort of pays the bill all the time. Yeah. Whereas with, with yeah, very much spoiled rich kid trying to play at politics, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas with, for example, with Asha Greyjoy, she's sort of it's kill or be killed with her, isn't it? And she's just managed to claw her way up in this yeah. in this world, which is obviously very difficult to do so when you're a woman. Um, yeah. And she's, I don't know. There's some. I think there's a, a lot more to connect with uh, from from my point of view, anyway. But um, anyway. Yeah, no, I I, I definitely sympathise with that. Um, yeah. To be honest with you, I mean, like while I while I find the character slightly more bearable than you do, I, I, the whole storyline, I was like, why do I care? Yeah. Why do I care? <laughs> yeah. Which is obviously has been my refrain for this entire book. To be honest, yeah, I think the, the inter- another just just think of, I didn't really think about this till we started talking about it. But the other interesting comparison with Ariana and Asher Greyjoy as well is that you have Ariana. Talking, talking up war and creating plots, having no real experience of what it is actually like to see people die and to have people die around you, and for you know, for what these kind of plots actually mean when they come to, come to fruition happen, and you have mm-hmm. Asher Greyjoy who's grown up sort of raiding places and sort of on the front lines and fighting in battles, and yeah. Asher. Is the one in uh, on the Iron Islands who is sort of chucking you know crate load tra- uh, crate loads of uh, acorns around, saying we need to sort of sue for peace and create an alliance and yeah. draw back a bit. And yeah. in Dawn, Ariane is the opposite. She wants to create a war um, with yeah. absolutely no idea of how she's going to win. And Doran sort of brings this up here, doesn't he? He says, you know, we're yeah. the least populous. Um, kingdom in westeros and we can't win a war on our own so if you got what you wanted it's the end of us yeah and i i really like that because that kind of answers a question i've had for the whole time because you know dawn's one of the seven kingdoms right Mm. but when it came to the war of the kings it was almost like they kind of put up a big nothing to see here sign Mm. at the crossing and they were just (laughs) like no what what is there a war (laughs) i'll be fucked i had no idea anyway uh more wine you know, like just just enjoying the high life, yeah. Um, and uh, and I think that's a much better kind of I, that's a much better explanation for that than just that they were kind of all at the beach. Mm. You know, the fact that that um, Prince Doran here <laughs> is like we don't we basically don't have an army. We have four dudes with pointy sticks and a really <laughs> badass reputation that I'm loath to surrender. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and it is really great political reasoning. Yeah. The problem that Doran's got now is because of this rebellion from Ariana or this attempted plot, 
it's created two issues because Balan Swan, another one of the King's Guard, is on his way to Sunspear with Gregor Clegane's head um, mm. skull once again, with implications for what Kyburn's doing back in King's Landing. Goodness knows what's going on there. But anyway, we'll leave that to one side. Um, he's on his way <laughs> with the skull. And the problem is when he gets there, he's going to find that his brother, his, his uh, you know, fellow Kingsguard member, Sereris, is dead. What are we going to say yeah. about that? And B, it turns out that Darkstar, this prick, um, it was this dickhead older guy who was hanging about with a lot of teenagers... Uh, it turns out he tried to kill Mycella and by some yeah. sort of freak of luck didn't manage to, but she's ended up with a massive scar on her face and she's actually on a sort of on a sick bed now. So how do we explain that as well? <laughs> so Dora's like, you've created a lot of trouble here. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's an excellent question, isn't it? Oh, uh, he died whilst out hunting. Don't ask what he was hunting. <laughs> You know, like, how do you even... Yeah, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily badly um, badly explained, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Um, Ariana, regardless of all this, is still loath to sort of concede that she's done anything wrong, really. Um, and the... <laughs> yeah, but her argument doesn't go any further than, shut up, you're rubbish, I hate you. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But uh, the, we get to the nub of it here, this problem between father and daughter with, as she's mentioned before, Ariana, she came across this letter which basically disinherited her and uh, Doran had written it to Quentin, his sort of eldest son, saying that when I die, you're going to get Dawn, not Ariana. And she she finally yeah. brings this up with him and says, I, I know about your plan yeah. to sort of kick me out of the line of succession. And he yeah. says the reason he did that was because she was going to marry um, Viserys, do you know the the dude who ended up with yeah. uh, Daenerys's older brother ended up with a golden crown over in uh, yeah. the Dothraki? Yeah, and I, I mean, yeah, go on. It's hard to argue that she dodged that she didn't dodge a bullet there. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I like the Prince Doran's whole thing is, but I was gonna marry you off to this complete screaming narcissistic bastard. <laughs> what do you mean you wouldn't have wanted to? <laughs> but th- this does reveal the the Dornish plan for revenge which is basically get take the Iron Throne by marrying a, ta- a exiled Targaryen and coming you know coming back with an army and and sort of kicking the Lannisters and the Baratheons and all those lot off the throne so this yeah. is the sort of long game that Doran's trying to play um, and he says yeah. now things have flipped around he says to Ariana, you know what you are going to get Dawn now because Viserys is dead and we're going. Yeah. We're trying. He's basically sent Quentin over the narrow sea to find Daenerys and marry her. <laughs> I do quite like. I mean, this for saying he split the book in half, and we've had no Daenerys at all at any point during this. Yeah. I did find that quite frustrating, but I do love that he's now set up a sort of Benny Hill chase <laughs> yeah. between <laughs> Quentin from Dawn and um, what was his name, the Crow's Eye. Yeah, um, from uh, from the Iron Islands. Well, he he he's, uh, he's, he's sent Victorian, hasn't he? The crow's eyes. Oh yeah, yeah sorry, yeah. he sent Victorian. Yeah, 
But knowing Daenerys far better than either of them, it is quite a pleasing prospect. Yeah. Because it's not as if... I think they must be imagining they'll walk into her presence in some tent somewhere yeah. and be like kind of, my queen, I am from Westeros with the shiny swords and the armor <laughs> and the glinty look in my eye and you will marry me. And she'll just be like, oh, glory, as a woman, I have no reasoning processes of my own. Please take me into your glistening biceps. <laughs> when what will actually happen is she'll take one look at them and be like, the fuck are you? Dragons! <laughs> and then it'll all be over. But I just want to watch that happen. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? So there are these various plots now developing in Westeros, um, which basically revolve around sending blokes out to get Daenerys to marry them. And yeah, Daenerys' mm -hmm. reaction is going to be fascinating. Glorious. Glorious. If she ever re reappears in this series, hopefully she will. Um. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's the other thing, isn't it? Is like, like... He's very good at setting stuff up, George, and they're not very good at actually making them pay off so far. Mm. So, and for me, unless a dance with dragons is all payoff, I'm going to be pretty pissed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, I want you know that there are there are two books after Dance for Dragons. So, I've... I well, are there though? There are two books planned after a Dance with Dragons. I'm starting to become extremely agnostic about that. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't have a great deal of faith that those books are going to get finished, to be honest with you. Oh, they will. Have faith. The G, <laughs> with the G-Man, writing, you know, with his, with his hit rate of a, a book a, a decade, isn't it? A book it? every six years. <laughs> yeah. Well. Hell, I mean, if he published this as one book, it would have been published in 2011, would have contained about 2,000 pages, and it would have been an 11-year gap between books. Mm. I, I mean, you know... Lord preserve us. Can you... I mean, I don't think he's got 11 years left in him, to be honest with you. Like, I just... I realise that's quite morbid and disrespectful. But he's a bit like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're going to get to the end of this series, to be honest. <laughs> All right, Dave, next up is a chapter about Elaine stroke Sansa. Uh, now, now... <laughs> Would, would it be right in thinking, Matt, that I've, I've read the alignment of the stars correctly and I've looked at the tea leaves and I've, I've, got, I've got a little bit of a vibe from you that you didn't enjoy this chapter very much. Would that be correct? Let, 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 me, let me counter that question with a question of my own. Does anybody like this chapter? <laughs> you know what? I think I might be about to blow your mind because <laughs> I've spent quite a lot of time bitching and moaning about the state of this book. And... and my desire to bitch and moan has, by the way, only increased since watching the last two episodes of the series over the last couple of weeks. But actually, this chapter didn't bother me in the slightest. In fact, I found it quite tense. I, I was actually, I found myself thinking halfway through it, oh, it's quite good, this. Yeah, well, okay. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe I didn't give it a chance then. Let's go through well, it. No, I, think, I think out of the two of us, Matt, you've given far more chances to this book and George Martin than I have. <laughs> So we're back with Elaine in the Eyrie, and uh, she's making her way down uh, the sort of mountainside with Sweet Robin now. Um, you said you got a bit of tension out of it. I did, yeah. I, 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 to be honest with you, I mean, part of that was because he introduces this character that we've never met before. Well, I mean, may see again, may not, but this, hmm. um, uh, she's a, she's a, oh man, what's the... Um, She's not a Frey. Royce. She's a Royce. Yeah. Right? And and she's basically introduced with, like, this is a horribly untrustworthy wench 
don't talk mm. to her. And then and then they kind of they go into this situation, and and George kind of describes really well, I think, like just how fucking mental it is that there's a castle on the top of this hill. Mm. You know, because it's not so much a castle on a hill. I've seen castles on hills. Castles on, you know, mm. you walk up to castles on hills. I'm not sure I want to do it on a, you know, in, in the middle of a war, but you can walk up to them. Whereas this is, this is literally, there's 600 feet, and no matter who you are, lord, lady, you know, serving wench, whatever, you can either get in the lift with the meat or clamber up hand over hand into this castle. Yeah. Right? Leading me to ask... Who the fuck built this place? Who was it? I mean, was it was this in the age of dragons when dragons were really not so much of a big deal, and some of them found themselves having to go looking for menial work in the construction industry? Like, <laughs> like what the hell? Like, I mean, can I mean a dragon bricky? Can you imagine? Mm. You know what? I think um, this might be um, one of these sort of super old ancient buildings where no one really remembers how they made it um, but sort of from the age of heroes with the Brandon the Builder guys and stuff because oh, there are yeah. other examples probably even more ambitious than this like uh, for example the wall um, which is a <laughs> goodness knows how many Legit. feet high wall <laughs> of ice yeah no one knows how to make that anymore yeah. and um, like there's also across the sea uh, that titan of Bravos is this absolutely enormous structure which no one really knows how, how it got there. <laughs> so there, there yeah. are these, I, I assume the Eerie is also one of those as well, because you're right, it would be um, an incredible undertaking to build this thing in the first place. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I quite like that George has like, foreseen this and gone, right, obviously fantasy series do want to have some absolutely ridiculously pimp buildings in this thing, but I'm going to mm. need a reason why they're there. Tell you what, Legendary king called the Builder. Come on, <laughs> done. Tick that but off I mean, the list. Next, it's probably a similar riddle though to some. And you can see parallels in the real world. Things like the pyramids and other sort of massive, like ancient structures. Where you, everyone thought we can't quite work out how people with sort of the skills that they had at the time could possibly have made these things. Yeah, actually, that is an excellent point. That is an excellent parallel to pull. Uh, but anyway, so so they're, they're climbing the way down from this um, it, almost impossibly made castle. And, um, yeah, there's this Royce uh, who's... I think she's the daughter of the guy who's guarding the Gate of the Moon. Um, yeah. She, she, she's quite... She, she's sort of... Uh, I don't know. She, she's she's a, a strong... Will, I suppose she's a strongish female character but very much within like the rules of this world. So a lot of the strong female characters we see are sort of break those rules, don't they? People yeah. like, uh, to a lesser extent, Sansa, but so a greater one, Arya, and uh, uh, I suppose, uh, what's she called over at uh, Ironborn? Asher or Ariana. They're always sort of trying to break the rules. And here, uh, this Royce is sort of, she's just sort of very happy to be sort of a wife, and she yeah. tries to sort of draw her power from what, what she can from that. She's quite proud of the fact that her ex-husband died, actually, in the middle of Shagina. <laughs> yeah, quite um, quite graphically so, isn't she? She's yeah. just like, oh, that happened. Yeah, and, that, and, you know, and this is a kind of a realistic character type, I think. Because you mm. get, you, you know, there are people who are like, um, uh, kind of like, 
gossip is my superpower. And yeah. you sort of think, well, you know, in another context, in another setting, if you had a different view on things, you could take over the world. But actually what you're interested in doing is like putting people slightly at their, slightly uh, at kind of dis-ease and, uh, you know, and kind of winning every conversation by being more candidly blunt than everybody else. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. That, that said, I would like to rewind... Just, just, just rewind it a little bit, Matt. Back, back two minutes ago, when you described Sansa Stark as a strong female character, <laughs> and I think we should talk about that because I can't think of a character who's more clearly subject to the whims of men who are more powerful than she is than Sansa mm. Stark. But, but what's in your head when you make when you make that statement? What do you think of that? Well, I think I think. Partly, it's the the fact that she's still um, she's well she, she's she's one of Westeros's great survivors at the moment, Sansa Stark, and she sort of she is uh, becoming more sort of cunning as well. And um, I don't know, you can see how the the effect that Baelish is having on her and her ability to start to play this political game. Um, so it's that, and I suppose maybe. It's more about what I hope she'll become rather than what she is at the moment. Um, but you can tell she's got potential. That's what I would say. Um, I thought it was interesting what you said about the, uh, the the sort of interesting gossip from from this Roy Scudder because I I yeah. put as a sort of description of her in the notes: uh, chatty, daft, soft, and safe. And the key one being safe. And I think the f- she, she sounds almost yeah. like she's been lifted out of sort of Pride and Prejudice. And um, I think it's a sort of a more bawdy version. And I think it's because this is a, the one part of Westeros which is still very safe. Nothing's nothing dangerous has happened here, so you so characters like this can grow, can't they? Whereas she just wouldn't have come along anywhere else in the kingdom, I don't think. That's true. Or she would have come along having recently gone through a transformation in character, holding a morning star, and looking for exactly. the next person to kill. Yeah, um, she'd have she'd have sort of seen something or had something done to it, which is so dreadful, which would have kicked all this sort of chatty, gossipy, sort of yeah. fun daftness out of her. That's interesting because I mean, you're right. That's all on the page. Like that's a totally legit way of reading the character. But because of the setting, because it's in a song of ice and fire, I was just assuming that she was going to turn out to be some like horrendous scheming <laughs> apprentice Cersei character. <laughs> anybody turns up being sort of you know kind of pushy. Um, yeah. I, I'm just like, oh, this is this is going to end badly, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the way down, uh, Robin very nearly has another fit. He's still there, sweet Robin. Um, <laughs> and doing San- nothing. <laughs> yeah. So Sansa does the sort of classic um, handling a child, handling a sort of un- like I don't know, uh, hand- handling a sort of weak child, if you like, where she she sort of makes him braver by telling him he is like she's like oh uh, i'm glad you're here because i'm so scared but you're not here and he's like mm, no I'm not. It, is, it is playbook page one for dealing with an obstreperous three-year-old but the problem yeah. is that robin is supposed to be lord of the eerie and so on isn't he like yeah i know he's supposed to be younger in this than he is in the tv series but still mm. it's like yeah. like I, I i just don't know how everybody around him isn't like what a fucking knob <laughs> like what? A, what a completely useless. Like I can't believe I'm supposed to be being led by this guy, and he's literally yeah. incapable of sitting on a donkey without throwing something. You know. Yeah, 
I suppose these guys in the Eerie are the and the Vale are the polar opposite to the Ironborn insofar as they just sort of form up and protect whoever's in charge just because of who they are and who the fathers were. Whereas it just doesn't really count for anything in other parts of the kingdom. Um, so he's quite lucky where he was born, to be honest, Robin. Um, the, that is really interesting, actually. Yeah. yeah. Like just the, the you know the kind of uh, the parallel between the two. Because I just assume that everywhere in, in Westeros is basically somewhere on the sliding scale between, you know, complete and total bastards all the way up to Ironborn. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no like, variety outside those things. Yeah. Uh, they, they reach the gate of the moon, which is uh, sort of down near the bottom. So they finally make it down. And uh, Littlefinger's there, uh, Baelish. He's got these three uh, hedge knights with him. And he's just starting to surround himself with a few sort of loyal, sort of buyable people because it's one thing he has got yeah. plenty of gold. Yeah, um, that's it, isn't it? He's, he's buyable, not not loyal so much as willing to kill other people before they try and kill me. Yeah, he gives Sansa this long, creepy kiss on the lips. Ugh. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna. I was actually gonna say that. You know. Um, Describing the Eyrie as a safe place is true from a military perspective, but when Peter Baelish is, is is hanging around, claiming to be you know your closest companion, and is also in control of the armies, hmm. not, not sure how safe we can call it. Yeah, and there's also this yeah. this this sort of Baelish is moving sort of sort of thinking outside the veil again now as well. It's not taking him long to sort of. Uh, worry too much about trying to consolidate his position here. He's already thinking about the next step. Uh, Little finger, always he, two steps ahead. Yeah, he's, he says that he's actually surprised at how quickly things are going south in in King's Landing. He didn't think Cersei would be this bad at um, at politics. So, and he's saying he might have to get rid of her early <laughs> just because she's she's making such a mess of stuff <laughs> down there. Um, that's amazing. And I, I love that, that there's one character in this entire world who's like, I, 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 it's really interesting. Obviously, Littlefinger's a hateful character, but I kind of love that he's in the books because everybody else is in this weird kind of I can't see why they're interesting and why them walking over here is different to them walking over somewhere else. Why is this, you know? Um, whereas Littlefinger, I'm like, no, I totally see why he's fascinating because he's the only character in this world full of people who are all like... Like running to keep up with this murderous treadmill made of knives, and he's the only person who stands back a bit and goes, "Yeah, I was going to kill her. Probably going to kill her <laughs> a bit sooner now." And that's that's like just the sheer moxie of that is fantastic because you kind of think that maybe he could, you know, that he's not just blowing smoke. Yeah, and he's yeah. completely hateful, but just the idea of anybody thinking on that sort of a level is quite nice because. You know, for several books now, this has been about what it's like when a medieval realm descends into murderous and ongoing, never-ending civil war, which is less compelling. Well, he's he's um, that's often how he manages to advance as well, isn't it? Sort of creating a bit of chaos and a bit of uh, strife in somewhere, almost like throwing the pieces <laughs> up in the air and seeing where they land, and then taking the advantage from it. Yeah, and he's, he's actually what? quite he's completely. He's somewhere in between Cicero and the Joker, isn't he? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least interesting as well, just to see it happen. I think it's interesting as well because of his sort of uh, his poor beginnings. He's quite keen on 
change in sort of the i'd imagine he's quite a useful person to know if you're at a fairly low station and wants to rise up because he he, in in the classic way that people who do that like to sort of pull other people up with them he does tend to do it i mean this is a these three hedge knights are an example they're like these sort of coming from nowhere guys and they're thinking you know if we attach ourselves to this guy he's going to drag us right up to you know he'll replace some high-born lords with us because he knows that we're more loyal to him and he that is pretty much what he's all about isn't it because he knows if he plucks people up from obscurity they're much more likely to stick with him because they their entire power goes through him yeah absolutely yeah uh, there's, so the, the plan for Sansa, he says, is to marry, uh, going back to sort of the Vale, is to marry this guy who's called, who's one of the Waynewoods. I mean, there's a long, complicated family sort of tree here, which is involved with the sort of who runs the, who's in charge of the Vale. And basically, uh, it means, long story short, uh, this Waynewood would be uh, the heir should Sweet Robin die. Which is a safe yeah. bet at some point, surely. Yeah. Um, so the the plan, the, the broader plan, is to marry her to this guy whose nickname's the Young Falcon, um, and then, uh, sort of, use the knights from the Eyrie. Basically, marry him, reveal who she is, i.e., Sansa Stark, and then use the Lords of the Vale to take back Winterfell. What do you reckon? Well. Littlefinger's trying to buy his way back into my affections, is what he's doing here. <laughs> the retaking of Winterfell, like, I'm, I'm mad in favour of that, obviously. Um, but um, uh, I, I have to tell you, actually, this bit, the whole kind of dynastic politics bit, um, was the bit, was my equivalent of you being like, why are we still walking down this mountain? Right. Um because I was like, oh, like I just can't. I don't have the mathematical brain to care about whose cousin <laughs> comes first in what line of precedence and why, you know. So it was the only part of the whole book where I felt like I had to get out a pencil and sort of jot stuff down to try and see kind of what's what. Yeah. Um, so and especially since at the end of the paragraph he just had Sansa go, oh I see. So recap of the dramatic importance of what I've just been told, and it was a bit yeah. like, oh just fucking tell me, you know, Sansa. I'm going to marry you to such and such as heir. Um, <laughs> you know, six words. But however, however, I acknowledge that it's shameful for me as a Brit not to be better on dynastic whatever as an American, since the definition of that, of that you know, nationality is having got rid of a monarchy. Um, so, but, you know, my, my, cultural, my cultural shame notwithstanding, that's still sort of... Uh, it dragged a bit. But the plan, cool. Um, mm. However, I mean, I have to do a little bit across... I don't know, maybe this is a spoiler. Tell me what you think. But, like, this is one of the places where it became clear to me that caring about the TV show and caring about the books are two very different things. Because yeah. this, obviously, this is not what happens in the book. Like, there's there's no conversation that takes place on this basis at all. Peter Baelish basically doesn't take or doesn't hang out in the Eyrie at all. There's no thing about the politics of the Eyrie, and there's no suggestion yeah. of the Eyrie retaking Winterfell or anything like that. And instead, there's a very protracted and unpleasant storyline involving um, Ramsay Bolton. Um, hmm. So 
I mean, just as a sidebar, I guess, I was a bit pissed about this because I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. I thought I was reading a book which was being adapted into a TV series. And this yeah. is just like, where, where the fuck are you? Fine. Which one of these qualifies as fan fiction at this point? Is the book the <laughs> fan fiction of the TV series or is the TV the fan fiction of the book? Because they're certainly not the same thing. Yeah, that's interesting. It is going. They are increasingly diverging from each other, although the author, George Martin, says they will end up at the same point at the very end of the series. Um, yeah, but I mean, in I'm, a way, that's more frustrating to me because that means that all of this shit in the meantime definitely doesn't matter. <laughs> like, it, it can't possibly have an impact on the end of the story. If it's going to end in the same place and two different things have happened, that means ultimately neither of them matter and they will finally resolve at, a, at the same point. So, you know, so I don't know. I just found myself a bit frustrated. Sorry, what uh, were you going to say? I was going to say, is it the resolution or the journey that you uh, read the oh, book for? Oh, 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 philosophy. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in what you uh, what you said about the the series and where it's going in relation to this plot, though. Um, I don't think it's a massive jump, even though we've obviously Sansa hasn't sort of been married off at the Vale. I think it's a massive jump to imagine Littlefinger with an army of the Vale. He's still the guy in charge over there going over to Winterfell and sort of saving Sansa. Yeah, that's true. All right, yeah, okay, I suppose that's true. I don't know, I just, I suppose, because I, I did watch the TV series, the first series of the TV series before I read the book, um, so I was kind mm. of, I was sort of, I'm putting people's faces onto these characters, and so it's this yeah. weird kind of cognitive dissonance of them being... <laughs> You know, doing one, different one things. face two characters. You know, yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, that is uh, as far as we're going for this week. I mean, as you as you sort of have already said, I'm not a massive fan of that chapter. I'm not a massive <laughs> fan of that section of the book. Although I'm quite surprised. I think I lowered my own expectations a little bit because I didn't find it nearly as as wearing as I thought I would do. Um, but uh, I, I do think this is the point where um, I'm sort of, sort of running through treacle a bit with the book. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, it's going to build to a, an exciting climax, and they'll pull it out of the bag at the for the final part. Because if you're yeah. reading along with us uh, for next week, you just need to read from the next chapter, which is about Brienne. Brienne's back, it seems. Um, well, as far as the end well, of the book. Well, well, I'm she dubious. Uh, is she back? Is it a dream sequence? Is this just George Martin throwing poo at my face and laughing? What's going on? <laughs> we shall discover next week. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it feels strange that we've finally nearly come to the end of it. But, uh, yeah, if you're reading it along does, with it's, us... It's get been to, a journey, Matt, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. If you're reading along with us, get to the end of that book and uh, we will go through the final chapter, or the final bit, of George R. R. Martin's A Feast for Crows next time on Shark Live Royal. Oh, before we go, don't forget, of course, uh, if you do want to send us some uh, feedback on the... might be a good time, actually, for next week on the uh, on the book uh, in terms of the gen- your general thoughts, general review of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you want to send that, yeah. uh, send us to sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com or you can get us on that there, Twitter at sharkliveroil. Until next time, Dave. Until next time, Matt. Goodbye.